Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Speaking of movies, in 2004, a movie came out called The Passion of the Christ. It was uh, basically the rendering of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life condensed down into a movie. It's quite a long movie, about two and a half hours. The movie was rated R, primarily because it was very bloody and quite violent. And if you saw the movie, this is what you remember. You will remember that it was a brutal and bloody and violent and shocking and gut-wrenching depiction of the death including the crucifixion, including the torture that preceded it, of Jesus Christ. It was not a movie for children. It was not a movie for the faint of heart. Rumors had it that at least two people had a heart attack while they watched this movie. And so we won't show it this morning. But as bloody and brutal and shocking as the movie was, historians would tell us that it was accurate, that it accurately portrayed what Jesus went through during his crucifixion and his death. Now, this morning, what I want you to do for just a minute is use your imagination. And I'm not sure if you can do this or not, because it is something that's hard to imagine. I'd like you to imagine that the movie that you might have seen or that I just described, The Passion of the Christ, was not about Jesus. It was not about the death of Jesus. It was about your death. And I also want you to imagine that through some divine intervention that God had revealed to you exactly how you would die. And so that movie, The Passion of the Christ, was what you got to watch in your mind's eye every day of your life leading up to the day when you would die that very death in that very same way. Now, I know that's hard to imagine, but also imagine that you knew exactly what day that would happen. And throughout your life, you were counting down the very days to that time. You knew the day and the hour at which it would happen, and you had a a, a movie-like picture of what would take place. And now, as we enter the story today, it's only three or four days away. Now, if you've got a good imagination and that conjures up some some ideas in your mind about how Jesus would feel, then well done. But that's just a little glimpse of what we have in Jesus' mind as we enter into the middle of John chapter 12. So let's pick it up in verse 27, John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So Jesus said, my soul is troubled. This word troubled in the Greek is a very, very strong verb. Uh, it might be better connotated as, as uh, uh, terrified or horrified or anxious or certainly unsettled. And what was Jesus troubled about? Well, it's fairly obvious he was troubled about three things. He was troubled about the excruciating physical pain that he would endure at his death. He was also troubled about the shame of bearing the sins of the entire world on his shoulders. And thirdly, he was troubled about separation from his father, which would happen for a period of time. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully man, and being fully God, he had perfect knowledge and understanding of the future. 
And so for Jesus, he knew when he would die. He knew the very day, he knew the very hour. And he also knew how he would die. He had in his mind's eye this movie I described, The Passion of the Christ, and he could see into the future exactly how his death and his torture would take place. And so he was faced with this just a few days away. But he was also fully man. And being fully man, he had emotions that were real. They weren't fake. And as he looked forward to those days, that day, three or four days ahead, and the pain and the agony that he would suffer, he had to be feeling fear and terror and anxiety. His soul was indeed troubled. And he says in verse 27, he says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, what was actually was happening in Jesus' mind here? Well, I can tell you what wasn't happening. It wasn't the case that Jesus was looking ahead three or four days and saying, whoa, stop, I can't do this. I'm going to rebel against this. I'm not going to do it. He didn't say, whoa, stop, Father. I can't go through with this. Save me. Oh, wait, that's sinful. Sorry, God, I apologize for that. I guess I need to stick with your program. Father, glorify your name. That didn't happen, although some commentators would say it did. Rather, Jesus was praying to God from his heart something like this, Father, shall I say, stop, I can't do this? No, help me to persevere through the terrible agony of my crucifixion in accordance with your will, for I wish to do your will in order to glorify your name. Jesus had an unwavering commitment to do the will of God the Father. And what was God the Father's will? His will for Jesus was that he would suffer a horrible, painful death, and that death would pay the penalty for my sins and your sins and for the sins of the world. And despite his fear, despite his terror, despite his anxiety about the pain and the death that would soon follow, Jesus was committed to God's sovereign plan. For what purpose? It says right here, to glorify God's name. And then in the story, a surprising thing happened. God answered Jesus in an audible voice, verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now this is the third time that God has spoken in an audible way in Jesus' presence, in the presence of other people who have heard it. His first time was at his, his baptism in the Jordan River. The second time was on the mountain of a, during his transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John heard the voice of God speak directly to Jesus. Um, and so God said, I have glorified my name, meaning that God had glorified his name through Jesus' ministry, looking back from the day, the day he was born as a man, throughout his 33 years of ministry, including the miracles that he had performed. And then God said, I will glorify my name again. And God would glorify his name again through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension into heaven, and then today, even looking forward to his second return. And Jesus has heard, had heard what God had spoken to him audibly. The people around him heard something, but they weren't quite sure what. Some thought it was thunder, and some thought it was an angel. Picking up now in verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
Now, Jesus said a lot in this few sentences. What exactly did he say? Well, I think he said five things. First, he said, God spoke out loud for your benefit, not for my benefit. In other words, that God spoke out loud for the benefit of the crowd that was listening to him, and not for Jesus' benefit himself. But what was that benefit? What was the benefit to the crowd who were listening to Jesus speak and then heard something, the voice of an angel or thunder or the voice of God? Well, I think it was two things, two benefits. One was the encouragement that God hears our prayers and answers them in real time. Jesus had just barely finished this short prayer to God where he said, please help me to persevere through what I'm about to go to, but I want to do your will. And God had spoken to him and confirmed a couple things. One, that he had heard his, his prayer, and two, that he had granted it. And by speaking audibly, the people who were there would have recognized that God was responding to him in real time. And that would have been a great encouragement to those people as well as to us to recognize that God does indeed answer our prayers. The second benefit, I think, was just to give the people an understanding that suffering for God's will will indeed glorify God. And that, of course, is still true today. Jesus said, looking forward to his suffering on the cross, and he stayed committed. He told God, look, I'm going to go through with this so that I can glorify your name. And God answered it in that way. And the people who trusted in Jesus would have remembered the story because they went through suffering too. And they would have remembered that when they prayed, that when they, they, when they endure through suffering, much as Jesus had done, that that would also glorify God's name. Second thing Jesus said was, he said, judgment of the world is now. By now, Jesus was referring to his time on earth at this very moment when he spoke. But looking ahead three or four days to his death and resurrection, and so we normally think that judgment comes at the end of the age, and we're right. But what Jesus is saying, that it begins now. That is now at his death and resurrection, judgment begins. Why? Because when Jesus died, he died for our sins, and then he rose from the dead to prove uh, that he was indeed God. And it was at that time, through his death and his resurrection, immediately after that, when people had the opportunity to believe in Jesus as their Savior or to reject him as their Savior. And so what Jesus is saying is that judgment begins now at his death and resurrection. The third thing Jesus said was he said was that Satan, called the ruler of this world, is, will be cast out now. Again, he's referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Satan's defeat was sealed now. That is at the point that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And in the future, Satan's future defeat is certain because God's plan is sovereign. The fourth thing that Jesus said was, he says, I will be lifted up. Jesus is saying two things here. He was describing the manner in which he would die on the cross, that is being lifted up on a cross, but he's also looking forward to the time that he would be raised up again, lifted up into heaven after his resurrection and ascension. And then the fifth thing he said, Jesus did said, he said, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. He's referring back to John chapter 6, where Jesus has said, has said that the God, uh, the Father, would draw all people to him. But it's not just God the Father that does this. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that does the drawing. God the Father draws. In John 6, Jesus said this. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
God the Son also draws, as we see right here in verse 32, where Jesus says, I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And God the Holy Spirit draws people through regeneration. Titus 3.5 says this, says that God saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So who gets drawn? Who is it that gets drawn? Jesus says that he will draw all people to himself. It's all people without distinction. It's all people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. It's all people, all nations, all tongue, all tribes. But it's not every single person in the world. We know that. Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said that, that some would be raised to eternal life and some would be raised to condemnation. So he was not referring to every single individual. Picking up now in John 12, uh, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, the crowd said that they had read their Old Testament scripture, and somewhere in there they had found that the Christ, that is the Messiah, would last forever. And so they're asking Jesus, they said, if you look, if you're claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, how is it that you're going to die? That's contrary to scripture. Now, John doesn't tell us what Old Testament scripture these people were referring to, but it's not difficult to find some verses that might have implied that the Messiah lives forever. For example, Isaiah 9-7 says this, speaking of the Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. From this time forth, and forevermore. Psalms 89 says this, God speaking, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. Daniel 7.14 says, speaking of the Messiah, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political ruler, a king, a king whose reign would last forever and he wouldn't die. But unfortunately, they had forgotten that we must look at the whole counsel of God. We can't just pick a few verses here and there that seem to support our preconceived notions. And so they miss out on several verses in the Old Testament that many of us will have on the tips of our tongues knowing that the Messiah would be cut off, that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, that the Messiah would be poured out to death, that the Messiah would be mourned for, and that the Messiah would be buried in the grave of a rich man. He would indeed die. And so they asked Jesus, who is this son of man? Who is this son of man? Now, they weren't asking him, where is he? Point him out to us. They knew that Jesus was talking about himself when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And so rather they were asking him, what sort of Messiah are you? You claim to be the Messiah, but then you say you're going to die, and that's contrary to Scripture. So we pick it up in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Talk, uh, sorry, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
The Jews had asked Jesus, what sort of Messiah are you? But Jesus didn't answer the question. He often did that. He had something else to say. He recognized that there was, there was a certain bad attitude among his listeners. And so he gave them a warning. The warning was pretty simple. He said, don't wait. Believe now. Believe in me now while I'm still here because I'm not going to be here for very much longer. Looking forward to three or four days ahead when he would die. Jesus referred to himself here as the light. We look back in John chapter 8 and verse 12 where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All throughout the book of John, we see this contrast between light and dark. It's a, it's a, it's a literary technique, but it's quite effective. The light being holy and the dark being evil. And Jesus in, in, in here can, compared walking in the light to walking in darkness. Walking in the light means that a person who walks in the light has the light of Jesus in his heart. And so his walk, that is his actions, the thing he, things he does on a regular basis, uh, reflect the light and the holiness of Jesus. And those who walk in darkness do not have the light of Jesus in their hearts. And so their walk, the things they do, the way they act, reflect the darkness of evil. Jesus said, essentially, believe in me, the light, now, while I'm still here. I won't be here for long. You should become sons of light, that is, like me, the light of the world, and believe now so that when darkness comes upon you, you won't be overpowered by the darkness. And then in verse 6, John simply says that Jesus left. He left and hid from them. He stayed in Jerusalem, but throughout the rest of John's gospel, he'll spend most of his time with his disciples and not in the crowds out in the public arena. And then John, in chapter 12, made a statement about the unbelief of the Jews, and it's a sad statement. The unbelief of the Jews was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so John describes it this way, beginning at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, that is, in Jesus, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, John says, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John said Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles. And all those miracles proved that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Jews didn't believe it. They didn't believe in Jesus. He has this phrase that he says they still did not believe in him. Those of you who know Greek will know that that is in the imperfect tense, which can be better translated as they were not believing in him. It was a continuous process. It was a continuous and a constant, progressive unwillingness to believe in Jesus. Why did the Jews not believe in Jesus? Well, here John repeated what Jesus had said at least twice already, once in John chapter 6 and once in John chapter 10, that there were two reasons the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. One was divine sovereignty, and two was personal responsibility. Divine sovereignty is such that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was part of God's 
uh, eternal sovereign plan, and therefore the Jews did not believe. Human responsibility says that it was the Jews' choice. They needed to believe in Jesus as a personal action, but they didn't. They freely rejected him. John says they were not believing in him, and therefore the Jews didn't believe. John said that Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament years and years earlier. He said God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Therefore, they could not believe. Now, why did God blind their eyes and harden their hearts? Because the Jews were not believing. Then in verse 42, John seemed to reverse his previous comment that the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. He says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Many even of the authorities believed in him. Now, we only know of two Jewish leaders who believed in Jesus. One was Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, and Jesus told him he had to be born again. And shortly after that, in John chapter 7, he defends Jesus in front of the council, even though he knows he's going to get some negative feedback for doing that. The second guy was Joseph of Arimathea, who was also on the council. And you recall the story where he went to the Roman officials to get Jesus' body back. And he did so publicly and dressed Jesus' body and put Jesus in his own tomb. But as for the other Jewish leaders, John just says, many of them believed. Was this belief saving faith? I don't think so. The reason I don't think so is because John then says, but in verse 42, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They didn't admit it so that they would not be pulled, put out of the synagogue. They were worried that the, that the Jewish leaders, if they found out they believed in Jesus, they would throw them out of the synagogue and never let them back in. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These Jewish leaders believed, but they wouldn't admit it in public. They were afraid uh, that they would be tossed out of the synagogue. They were more worried about what men thought than what God thought. And they loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. And so their faith was so weak, it's unlikely that it was true saving faith. Jesus had warned the Jews about this before. In John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said this to the Jews. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It was a grave warning. It was a grave warning that not all, saving, not all faith is saving faith. True faith in Jesus, faith that saves, places Jesus at the top of the priority list above everything else. Finally, John 12, 44 through 50, a long section here. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So in verse 44, it says, Jesus cried out and said. Jesus had already abandoned the public crowds. It says in verse 36 that Jesus just wandered off to be alone. And so we know that this, this must have taken place at, at some other time in John's gospel, and John's repeating it here. I think what's really going on here is that, is that John's decided at this point, just before Jesus goes out of his public ministry into his private ministry with his disciples, he's going to give us an executive summary of what Jesus has said. There's nothing new in anything that Jesus says here. In fact, we have preached on every one of these points previously in the book of John. And so I think what John is doing is, is he's giving us kind of a, an executive summary of Jesus' main points. And his main points are these. First one is that those who believe in Jesus also believe in God the Father who sent him. We talked about this back in John chapter 8, verse 19. Jesus here says that Jesus is the light of the world. Believe in Jesus and overcome the darkness. We talked about that back in John chapter 8, and verse 12. Jesus came to save, not to judge we talked about in John chapter 3, verse 17. Judgment, Jesus says, will come on those who heard Jesus' words but did not obey them. We preached about that in John chapter 5, verse 47. Jesus spoke not on his own authority, but on the authority of his Father. We talked about from John chapter 8, verse 28. And lastly, eternal life will come to those who believe in Jesus. We know that's a summary of John 3, 16. So what I'm not going to do this morning is go over those in detail. I would refer you to the previous preaching that we've done in this section. But it's a great summary of Jesus' public teaching. It's a great summary of the major points that Jesus has made throughout the course of the book of John. And it's useful to have them all packed into just a few verses. And then for the rest of John's gospel, we'll see Jesus, not out in the public arena preaching, but with his disciples, continues to teach them as we unpack the rest of the book of John but it's all mostly in a private setting, not out in public. So to wrap up, I have three applications. One, don't wait. Two, watch your walk. And three, stand firm. Don't wait. Watch your walk. Stand firm. First application is if you haven't yet believed in Jesus. Don't wait until God hardens you. It's a sobering reality that those who persistently harden their hearts against Jesus may someday find their hearts permanently hardened by God. This is precisely how God dealt with Pharaoh when Moses went to him and told Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and so God, in response to that, hardened his heart even further. If you go back to the book of Exodus and read through the whole ten plagues story, and you do some counting, you'll find that ten times the writer says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and ten times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God sometimes hardens the heart of men who have hardened their own hearts. Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's talking here about people, Paul is, he's talking about people who refuse to love the truth and be saved. 
This is what he says. He says, therefore, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so just as in Moses' day, Pharaoh, and just as in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, when, when people willingly reject Jesus, God sometimes hardens them in order that those who are not willing to believe in Jesus may not be able to believe in Jesus. God hardens the man who has hardened himself. So I would encourage you that if you have not believed in Jesus, do not wait. Do not wait. The day may come when God will harden your heart and you will be unable to believe. Believe today. Second point of application is if you believe in Jesus, watch your walk. If you are a believer, watch your walk. John said that many of the Jewish leaders believed, but it was not saving faith. They didn't walk in the light. The person who walks in the light has the light of Jesus in his heart. He grows in holiness. He matures in his faith. He follows hard after Jesus. John, the same guy who wrote the book, the Gospel of John, also wrote 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, this is how John describes that. Walking in the darkness and walking in the light. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If I say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Many of the Jewish leaders believed but it wasn't saving faith. They proved their unbelief by the way that they walked. John said they loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. They didn't confess faith in Jesus because they were afraid of what the Pharisees would do. They didn't admit that they believed in Jesus. And by doing this, they denied Jesus. They denied him. People still deny Jesus today. How do we deny Jesus? Well, we do it in many number of ways, but some of them are quite subtle. We deny Jesus when our actions, our words, and our lifestyle are not aligned with God's will. We deny Jesus when we claim to believe in Jesus, but we live like we don't. We deny Jesus when we act like the Jewish leaders and we're unwilling to admit to others or to share our faith with others. And we deny Jesus when we fear people and their response more than we fear the wrath of God. Jesus said a very chilling thing. He said, if you deny me, I will deny you before God the Father. So let's watch our walk. And this brings us to our final application. Application number three is to stand firm. Stand firm in the middle and in face of suffering. Stand firm in the face of suffering. I don't have to tell you that this life is hard. We suffer. We suffer emotionally. We suffer spiritually. We suffer physically. We suffer financially, relationally. It's a difficult world that we live in. 
This coronavirus or pandemic, I think, is just a reminder that this place on earth really ain't heaven. We suffer. And while we don't need to be reminded of that, Paul did so anyway in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul wrote this, he said, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says we are destined to suffer. Jesus suffered enormous physical, spiritual, emotional pain in his crucifixion and in his death. And just days before his death, as we enter this story in the middle of chapter 12, Jesus sees with picture-perfect clarity exactly how that Friday is going to go with the pain and the agony and the gore. And his soul was troubled. His soul was horrified. It was terrified looking forward to that day. But Jesus was committed. He was committed to endure that suffering because he was fully committed to God's will. For what purpose? To glorify God's name. And so, how did God respond to this? Well, God spoke audibly to him and said, I have been glorified. My name will be glorified. And so Jesus set an example. He set an example for all of us to follow in suffering. And when faced with the suffering, if we endure, that is, if we stand firm, we will glorify God's name. Stand firm in the face of suffering. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.